In the last 20 years, tuition costs have soared. In-state tuition at public universities has increased about 158% during that time. Long gone are the days that our boomer parents reminisce about. You know, when you could work for a summer and save up enough money to cover tuition for a full year of school. Yeah, that's not happening anymore. Many of us, especially Gen Xers like me and millennials, were told to go to school and get a good job. Even with student loans, our parents told us it was worth it. Surely we'd get good jobs and be able to pay off the student loans with ease. Today, 51.8% of those who complete an undergraduate program had to use student loans at some point. So let's take a look at student loans. Let's talk about the realities of where we are right now and how it's okay if you don't plan to pay off your student loans early or even at all. Welcome to It Doesn't Make Sense, where even when you're doing money wrong, you're still doing it right. Season one is all about digging into debt. Is it a moral failing or can some debt actually be a tool for a better life? We're going to cover all the angles. The reality is that for many of us with student loans, especially Gen X and millennials, we were told that it would be fine to get student loans for an education because it was good debt that we could easily pay off. I'm lucky. As a young Gen Xer, I had access to low rates. My loans are 1.9% and will be paid off in 2030, and I have not made an attempt to pay them off early. So I am a millennial. I didn't have it rough, just a caveat, <laughs> but there are plenty of millennials who've had it rough. And I'll talk a little bit, but later why my situation is quite different than compared to many other millennials. So millennials really had it rough because they've experienced a lot of major economic upheaval just when they were finishing school and entering the job market. So I want to link this in the show notes. This was a pretty, dare I call it, viral article by Michael Hobbs uh, from, I think he was at with Huffington Post at the time. It was talking about millennials are like the screwed generation. But it was talking about all the economic factors in which millennials really had it very rough in terms of job prospects, student loans, housing, and all of those things. Yeah, and I think that's a really good point to, to bring up here. When a lot of our parents, those of the baby boomer generation, were going through school, they didn't have to take out student loans. And everything in our society was built around trying to help, well, at least certain groups of people anyway, but trying to help people move forward and live better lives than their parents. And there was a lot more social support for these things. And today, we're just told, oh, get student loans. At least I was. I was told, get student loans. You'll be able to pay them off later. And it's no problem. And then millennials got stuck with two major economic upheavals and this rising inflation that we talked about actually in our last episode on personal loans. They got stuck with this rising inflation, poor job market, and now they have all the student loan debt. So the caveat, I guess I'll just, spoiler alert, I grew up in Canada. I went to college in Canada. So a lot of this doesn't necessarily apply to me. I don't know what it is now. This was back in early 2000s. So tuition can be very different in Canada now. When I was in college or university, tuition was quite, quite low. So even if you did take out student loans, it, it wasn't as much as what many in the U.S. would have paid. But what I did experience, and part of the reason 
why I did go overseas was that I, I was a teacher. So that was my my career at the time. And it was really, really difficult to find a job. There were many teachers that didn't want to retire because of the recession. They were a little bit worried about their retirement savings. They wanted to make sure that they kept their job in case right during the financial crisis at that time. And so if people weren't retiring at sort of a predicted pace, so to speak, then there are less jobs for people trying to enter the job market. And so that's what I found was that it was already difficult to even get a, a teaching job despite that condition. But now that there were a lot more would-be retirees not retiring, it made it extra difficult for all of these graduates to to find jobs. I do want to make a comment about the whole idea of good debt. So if you have listened thus far in this season, we've talked about the idea of air quote good debt and air quote bad debt. And I find it really interesting is there's almost this I'd like to say contradiction, because we talk about maybe in general, we talk about good debt, bad debt, paid off as fast as you can. But even with the quote unquote good debt, society or common, I guess, like the common consensus is almost like still paid off early as possible. So like that to me doesn't make sense at all. I don't know about you, Miranda. It's a little bit weird. And student loans have become one of these weird things in between, right? When I was growing up, I was basically pushed into getting student loans. There was no way my family was going to be able to pay for this. And especially when I had uh, four younger siblings coming up after me. And I was basically pushed into it. My school counselors, everybody was just like, oh, yeah, just get the student loans. It'll be fine. It is, in air quotes, good debt. But today, people are looking at the student loan crisis and seeing how much people owe in student loans. And they're like, well, maybe you shouldn't have got into debt. <laughs> maybe, maybe you shouldn't have done this debt thing that we all told you to do. Maybe you shouldn't have done that. Or they'll say things like, oh, well, you know, you should have checked your degree to make sure that the return on investment was worth it. And it's like, no, we were just kind of told to do this. And also, P.S., you're 17 or 18 when you're getting these loans and you're pushed into it and you don't have a fully developed frontal lobe, you're barely being allowed to vote and you can't even drink alcohol. I'll add, this is just my personal experience, dating choices. Like you are not old enough to understand dating in a way that you probably do when you're a little bit older, right? There's among among other things. I'm just right, saying like, right. you know, some people follow people like across the globe for, for quote unquote love, right? Like anyways, I, I'm just saying like, I'm not saying as a 40-something-year-old now that I don't make crazy decisions, but when I was 18, gosh, I don't even remember half of the stupid things I did. I'm just I'm just going to throw that out there right now. To be fair also is I think as a 17, 18-year-old being pushed into loans, I think a lot of parents may not even quite understand the, the consequences of it either. And so even if parents were encouraging it, it might not necessarily have come from this, like lack of a better term, bad place. Maybe, again, the consensus is take out a loan. If I can't afford to pay for this tuition or have the means to take out a loan myself, it's so common. Why not? I think a lot of people also like blame parents for a lot of this. It may not even be their fault if this concept of loans, not even student loans, but loans in general is such a mystical kind of concept. It's really difficult for anyone, let alone an 18-year-old, to grasp what it is and, and sort of what you could face decades down the line. Like, like again, and an 18-year-old, when I was 18, I wasn't even thinking about being 40. <laughs> like, I was thinking about, like, getting out of high school, being cool and going to college where we're at right now in society, where it's like, looking back, especially for let's call them like zennials, um, right? The folks that are like the younger Gen Xers and older millennials, we really do have that experience of being told, 
that you go to school, you get your degree, your good job. It is acceptable to have the student loan debt. But now that we're all saddled with it and people are trying to pay it off and trying to figure out what they're due, all of a sudden it's like, you are bad. You should not have done that. And there's a lot of finger wagging by folks I would assume, and I am probably right about this, but I would assume that a large percentage of the folks doing the finger wagging right now are some of the same folks who 20, 25, even 30 years ago were like, oh, yes, it's okay to get some student loans for debt because it's all going to work out. And, you know, you'll be a contributing member of the economy and it'll all work out. So I think that's something to keep in mind as we have this conversation about student loan debt is that, first of all, as we keep pointing out, debt is morally neutral. You're not a bad person if you're in debt, and you're not a bad person if you're trying to figure out how to make these student loan payments now, right? It's in the past. You have the debt now. Now let's figure out how we're going to make it work with our finances. I was thinking as you were talking about that, one of my philosophies or values really, not just in money, but in life is you made decisions that you thought were best at the time. And so if you were 17 or 18 or however old you were and gotten these student loans and everybody around you told you it was a good idea or you, you read some articles or whatever it may be and you realize, okay, this is my best option based on what I know and you took out loans and you realize now, oh, this wasn't such a, a smart thing to do, right? The important thing is you know what's happening now and that you can change it. You cannot change the past. You can, I mean, I'm, I'm not saying that I don't feel a lot of shame over past stuff. That's another podcast episode. But, you know, I try my best to be like, okay, that that's a decision I made. I was, I don't know, 20 at the time and my 20-year-old brain, that's what it thought. Now I'm twice that age and I know a lot more than I did when I was 20. And so I, I can base different decisions based on what I know now. All of this to say, and I hope you know this by now for Miranda and I, and I am speaking on behalf of uh, Miranda because I know she agrees with this, is that it's okay to move slowly with paying student loan debt. There are lots of different tactics in place if you want to be able to pay down your student loan debt slowly or, you know, at whatever pace you you need to. And I would love it if Miranda could explain some of this because, again, caveat here is I grew up in a Canadian school system, so my knowledge of some of this isn't as detailed as Miranda's. This is something that you can do is you can check to see if you qualify for income-driven repayment. And one of the best things to check into, and we'll have links in this show note to different types of income-driven repayment plans, and then also we'll have some links to resources that can help you implement them. So make sure you check that out in the show notes. But I think an income-driven repayment plan is a really good place to start, and it's very easy to apply for one. Most servicers have a little button you can push, and they'll do a review to see what you qualify for. One of the best income-driven repayment plans right now is the new SAVE plan. That's S-A-V-E. It was introduced in uh, middle of, in mid-2023. First of all, it is designed so that unlike other income-driven repayment plans, if your minimum payment doesn't cover your interest, it doesn't continue to accrue. And so one of the great things about the SAVE plan is that if you qualify, you won't be accruing extra interest each month. It won't be accruing and added to your total loan balance because there are plenty, plenty of horror stories from people who got on an income-driven repayment plan and their minimum payment on this plan didn't cover interest. And so it would be added to their balance. And so you would end up with growing balances. That does not happen under the SAVE plan. 
So one of your best bets is to see if you can qualify for the SAVE plan for income-driven repayment. And of course, you're going to have some income requirements for that. It's going to depend on your house size, your income. Once you fill that out, once you see what you qualify for, and once you get on the SAVE plan, if you qualify, that can be a way to make things affordable, slow it down. And then also, it's one of those plans that after you have had your student loans for a number of years, the balance will be forgiven. So that's something you can think about as well. So I know folks who are just like, yeah, I'm just going to get on the safe plan. And as long as I qualify for income-driven repayment, I'm going to stay on the safe plan and we're just going to do that. Now, that's not necessarily the best choice for everybody. And it is going to result in more paid back overall than if you aggressively paid down that debt. But if you are in a situation where you're literally just like, I need some breathing room in my budget. I would like to work toward other goals in my life right now, like saving for retirement or going on vacation maybe next year. Or even if you just are like, I need to be able to pay for my housing and my food and the student loan is hanging over me something like income-driven repayment can help you because it's figured as a percentage of your discretionary income. And in the SAVE plan, it's 5% of your discretionary income. And the great thing about income-driven repayment is if you are on income-driven repayment, even if they calculate that your monthly payment is zero, every month that you make your $0 monthly payment, it counts toward the next thing I'm going to talk about, which is public service loan forgiveness. Uh, So public service loan forgiveness is available to people who work in the public sector work for nonprofits. uh, And we'll have, once again, links in the show notes for more information about qualifying for that. But if you make 120 qualifying payments, so that's basically 10 years, you get the rest of your loan amount paid off. And so if you are on income-driven repayment, every payment that you make on an income-driven plan, even if that payment is $0 per month, counts as a qualifying payment. And on top of that, and once again, there are going to be links because we could do an entire episode on public service loan forgiveness. We could do an entire episode on income-driven repayment. And we could do an entire episode on the special income-driven repayment waivers that were released last year to help more people qualify for public service loan forgiveness. So there's a lot going on here. And so we will have links so that you can do further research and see what works best for you. But planning for public service loan forgiveness, especially if you are a teacher or you work for a nonprofit or you work for a government entity, that can be a really great way to get on an affordable plan. So get on an income-driven repayment plan. And then if you stick with it for, for 10 years and make those 120 qualifying payments, have the remaining balance forgiven. And that is a really, really good way, uh, especially if you are struggling with your finances and you are doing some good in the world with your job. It's a good way to make things more affordable and get a little relief. So two things. First question, I know we're going to, again, link all this in the show notes. Miranda, I don't know if you know this, but if someone's already on an income-driven repayment plan now, are they able to try to find a way to qualify for the new SAVE plan? Is that is that a possibility? Oh, yes. You can ask to be changed from one income-driven repayment plan to another. So yeah, you can do that. Uh, just remember that every year you're on an income-driven repayment plan, you do have to resubmit your income and you do have to show that you qualify. Now, if you don't qualify for income-driven repayment, like I don't, you can federally consolidate your loans. So you can wrap everything up with one big happy bow and you can uh, wrap it up, put it in consolidation. And instead of having 
the 10-year time frame, which is what a lot of people get their sticker shock from when they're looking at student loans and they're looking at their new payments after their grace period is over. A lot of the sticker shock comes from your automatic regular plan is a 10-year repayment plan. And so if you've got like, you know, $60,000 in student loan debt and here you've got this repayment plan that's 10 years, you'll just look at that and you will have sticker shock. But one thing you can do is consolidate that with a federal consolidation loan. And once again, if you just go into your student aid account and we'll have a link to how to get into your student aid account, how to get into the National Student Loan Database and see a record of your student loans and request consolidation through there, we'll have links on how to do that and information on how to do that in the show notes. But if you go in there and you consolidate, you can get a consolidation loan of 25 to 30 years, depending on your situation. And that will make your payments smaller and more manageable. Now, once again, you are going to pay more in interest over time because once you lengthen out any loan, you will pay more in interest. But if what you are looking for right now is a way to manage your budget and have some breathing room in your spending plan, this can help you. And once you get that consolidation, once you get a handle on things, and once your budget is a little bit more comfortable, then you can decide to rapidly pay down your debt down the road. I love it. Awesome. Again, I defer to Miranda to a lot of this stuff. I want to learn more. Um, but as of right now, my knowledge is, is a little bit limited. But I, I do want to say the second point I wanted to make was I will link to this and we'll link to this in the show notes as well, is that my former podcast, Beyond the Dollar, a person actually came on to talk about their experience with trying to get student loan forgiveness for their federal student loans. And so I think it was about quarter of a million dollars that they were in debt from law school and other related degrees. And so they were looking to have a lot of that forgiven. And so it was an in it's an interesting perspective, uh, whether or not you agree with it or not, just to really listen to see from a human, right? Like a human perspective on, on what it is that they're trying to do. And this is a really good segue into private refinancing, which I know a little bit more about. So I'm not totally like dumb on this subject. But yeah, private refinancing simply means that you take your federal student loans and you can refinance them into another loan through a private lender. Or if you already have private student loans, you can just, again, refinance it with another private lender. So Miranda, when when actually does it make sense to refinance it from a federal student loan to a private student loan? But you have to realize that there are federal loans that come from the government. You refinance your federal student loans, if you have good credit, you might get a better rate. So you might get this nice, really low interest rate and really low payment, and you could save money. But you have to realize that once you refinance your federal loans into the private loan ecosystem, you lose your federal benefits. You cannot apply for income-driven repayment. You cannot get student loan forgiveness. So if income-driven repayment and student loan forgiveness are on your list of things you want to explore down the road. Federal loan consolidation plus applying for income-driven repayment is your way to make sure that you have more options later. Because you can always refinance your student loans later if you decide that loan forgiveness is off the table or something like that. You can always refinance later. But once you refinance, there is no taking that back. And it's important to realize that. And if you have private loans, because a lot of people do have private student loans, if you have private student loans, then you also want to make sure, like maybe you say like, okay, I'm going to refinance my student loans. I'm going to do that separate and do that privately. And then any federal loans I have, I'm going to consolidate. So you want to make sure you keep them separate unless you are ready to completely abandon federal loans altogether and any potential benefit down the road and mix them all up and put them all in one place, which is perfectly valid as well. 
a lot of people do that. A lot of people in high income positions where they know they're not going to get that loan forgiveness. They know they don't qualify for income-driven repayment. They have good credit. So they want to just get everything in one place at one low rate. They'll do that. And that can make sense. But really think through this because once you refinance those federal loans to something that's private, you're done. You have many fewer options for how to proceed. I did this on my other podcast, Money Talks News. We did talk about Parent Plus loans. Parent Plus loans are their own special, special hell. If you want to consolidate them uh, with your other federal loans, then you might not qualify for certain plans. There's a special loophole that you can use to get on the save plan if you have plus loans. It's a whole mess. Plus loans are their own special problem. And we'll have some stuff in the show notes if you are uh, amongst those who have parent plus loans and are frantically trying to do something about that before next year. So I've said this in a previous episode. I did talk about my husband and I really wanted to pay off all of our debt before we, we actually got married. And one of those was student loans. And so we decided like each of us collectively, we're going to pay off our student loans. So if you are listening and you're like, yes, actually, I prefer to try to pay off my student loan debt faster. I'm in a position where I could. Now, what are some tactics that that people can go about how to do that? Yes. If you've decided that what you want to do is pay down your debt as quickly as possible. Like I said, I haven't tried that. If you go back to our episode on investing while in debt, you can actually see a breakdown of why I decided to stick with my student loans and not pay them off early. Also, you can see that I have a ridiculously low interest rate. And so here we are. But if you are looking to pay down your debt faster, I would still suggest first, number one, especially if you are having a budget crunch in your life right now, is doing that federal loan consolidation, getting that term out and where you're at with your budget, that you have enough money to work toward other goals, that you have enough money to pay for the necessities to make sure that you are in a good place with your spending plan. So I would start by doing that. Get that that payment as low as possible for you, and then you can start tackling things. Your next step is to figure out, similar to any other debt pay down plan, how much you can put toward reducing your debt each month. So figure that out. Now, here's where it gets super fun with student loans. A lot of the time, if you make an extra student loan payment, you need to specify that you want it to go toward principal reduction. So you either need to call the servicer, look and see if when you're submitting your extra payment, if you need to check a little box, you need to double check the language because a lot of the time when you make an, like an extra student loan payment, they'll take out your next month's interest and fees and whatever as part of it and just treat it like another student loan payment. And it will eventually help you reduce your debt, maybe for it to be more effective. You want to designate that specifically as a principal payment. So make sure you're doing that. Get it down to the lowest payment you can possibly get through uh, federal consolidation, income-driven repayment if you qualify. Make sure you get it down to that. Figure out how much extra you can put toward it each month. And then when you make those payments, make sure that you designate those to go directly to the principal. Then as you go through, you can increase how much you put toward it as you free up more cash in your budget. You can put more toward that. Uh, if you decide down the road that you don't need to take advantage of any sort of forgiveness later, or you don't think that you're going to need access to income-driven repayment later, and you feel like you can get a lower rate refinancing privately, 
go ahead and do that if you feel like you can get that better rate and you can save more money. Uh, a lot of the time with the refinancing, you can get 5, 10, and 15-year terms. You can get other terms as well, but those are very common ones. And that can help you pay that off faster. But the key is, once again, starting with your current budget, figuring out how much you can put extra toward it, and then designating all of your extra payments toward the principal. Just a little tiny tangent. This sort of applies to many, many other loans as well. And I found this out because I screwed up somewhere in my auto pay <laughs> for my mortgage payment and I made like an extra month's payment somehow. So I know this is like a good problem to have because I'm like, I can afford to like make another mortgage payment and still be totally fine. It would have been nice if that extra payment went towards the principal instead of the principal and interest. And I believe for some auto loans, it's the same case where you just have to make sure you check it because by default, any extra payments for many lenders just goes towards an, like a, an actual payment towards like principal and interest. So just as always, before you make any payments, please just look because sometimes there's like all these little things like tiny checkboxes and words. Sometimes I get confused that could make the difference between paying down your loan much, much faster and paying down it a smidge faster, but not as fast as you like. And again, we just want to emphasize this. Again, I'm speaking on behalf of Miranda. Apologies is that there is no shame. However, you decide to pay down these student loans. If you want to pay them down faster, awesome. If you had to get student loans for whatever reason and now you're struggling, like if you were taught, hey, just get loans or good debt, but you weren't necessarily taught about the consequences of the debt? What would happen if you maybe graduate and get a job with a good salary or you were temporarily unemployed? Like, again, just want to emphasize, like, how can you really imagine the situation where you are to pay off debt when you were 17, when you may not have had a, a job yet or lived on your own yet? Like, if that's your situation or whenever you took up these loans. So again, no shame. However you want to do it, just really understand the strategies out there, what applies to you, what your, again, what your budget is. And then, yeah, just move forward from there. So one thing we need to acknowledge as we move on, and we've talked about these student loans, is the fact that a college education is still seen as the ticket to higher lifetime earnings. My parents told me to go to college and get an education. My dad had his PhD, and in his family, his generation, so his siblings, they were the first generation in his family to be highly educated. So he and all his siblings live lifestyles my grandparents couldn't even conceive of. So it made sense for them to encourage all of us, me, my siblings, to go to school and to get student loans to do it. My parents were also highly educated. They were the first in their families to get college education as well. And so it really was the expectation for me. So in Chinese culture, I'm going to generalize a little bit, but in Chinese culture, it is highly prized that you have a really high education. So that could be like a bachelor's degree, master's degree, PhD, things like that. For the most part, it is seen as a way towards upward mobility. It is also seen as a way to get yourself a, you know, air quote, stable job. There's a lot of means about it. Maybe I'll, I'll find some and share, but there's, you know, the idea of like, if you meet someone who's Asian, they're mostly like a doctor, lawyer, or like somebody in, a, in one of those kind of type of professions. And for the most part, Asian American parents or even Asian parents in general want their kids to be able to, to earn a, a good wage, right? To live a good life. And so these are the professions that are sort of seen as a way to do it. And I don't know if this is applicable to like every Chinese like family out there or Chinese American, Chinese Canadian family out there. My parents, their friends, they would compare their children like what college did you get into? What university did you get to? What degrees? And like, it was, it was almost like sort of like a bragging rights kind of thing. And it was really hilarious because 
and I say this a lot offline too, is that I was the only person in all of my family, and I'm talking about like extended family, to not get anything finance related. And I swore that I would never, ever be in the finance industry, and here I am. But I was still seen as going to a prestigious university or a prestigious program because the university that I went to had the best visual arts program in, I would say, I don't even know if it's all in Canada, but at least in the province of Ontario. So it was a bragging point for my father back in the day, be like, oh, Sarah got into this cool visual arts program in, in this college. But funny thing is that I really wanted to actually pursue computer animation and graphic design. That was really one of my, my loves. And I really wanted to pursue that as a career. And so there's a community college in Toronto. This was back in late 90s, early 2000s. I'm not really sure if it's still the case. But this college, most of the graduates actually went on to get jobs at Pixar. So that's, that's pretty cool. And by college, I mean community college, I guess equivalent in the US. It was pretty, again, air quote, prestigious. And I really wanted to go. And it was such a discussion amongst my family that it was almost not worth the effort to present my case. I just decided, you know what, I'm just going to pursue a teaching degree. I like teaching too. I have to go to university to do that. Eventually, I did teach for about a decade before I transitioned into to what I'm doing now. When you talk about that prestige, we like to have that. I get all the time crap that my son chose to go to a community college because he wasn't entirely sure what he wanted to do. So he thought it made more sense to go to community college, get some generals out of the way, and then explore a trade, right? Here at the community college, we have a community college that's high in trades. We've got welding, electrician. Actually, he ended up deciding to go into cybersecurity and working on a cybersecurity cert and an associate's degree in applied science. But a lot of people give you crap about that. But the reality of the situation is, is it's like, it's not about where you go. It's are you developing a marketable skill? And even today, what they found when they look at earnings is a bachelor's and, and my son's getting an associate's and he's actually going to make pretty good money when he's done probably just because of where we live and the situation we're in where he can go out to a national lab and our national lab is the nation's cybersecurity hub. So he'll be able to get a good government job with his associates. But that's not always the case. And in fact, bachelor's degree holders still earn 84% more over their lifetime than high school diploma holders, 31% more than those with associates degrees. And professional degree holders like doctors and lawyers and MBAs are more likely than PhDs to exceed bachelor's degree earnings. When you stop and think about that, some sort of education, some sort of college, that still is a very prestige thing. And a lot of parents push their kids into that. And like I said, I get a lot of crap because I didn't push my kid into that. I thought it was great that my son wanted to take a step back <laughs> and ruminate on this for a minute. And he'll be set up in a really good position because he did. And also because I didn't push him someplace just for the prestige. I mean, how dare you let him make his own choices, Miranda? Like what? What the heck? <laughs> I'm kidding. But like, how dare you? It's insanity. And, and like, and number two, how dare you let him sit down with a decision as big as this and like let him ruminate on it? I mean, my goodness, you should have just pushed him to these student loans, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, luckily, I have a 529. But <laughs> no, I'm kidding. But I mean, I think, I think too, then you know, on the, the flip side of it is that we have folks that swear that entrepreneurship or the trades, and there's nothing wrong with either of these things, are the way to go. And, and they say, ditch college altogether, it's a scam. What do you think about that, Sarah? Oh, I have a lot of talking points. So, but let's first <laughs> tackle entrepreneurship. I just want to say that entrepreneurship has a lot of benefits. You and me, Miranda, we are entrepreneurs, right? we're self-employed, and we've, I'd like to think we've done pretty well for ourselves. But the reality is that 
entrepreneurship isn't best suited for everyone. It could be personalities. Maybe your skills isn't suited to certain types of businesses. Maybe there's a lot more risk in terms of like you have to rent, you're purchasing physical products. There's a lot of things like that to manage. I remember talking to a mentor a long time ago. He mostly, for the most part, he suggests people who are graduating from college or people who are graduating high school who want to run their own business actually get a job first because he felt like it was good for someone to sort of see how organizations worked. Maybe if they've never had a job in their life before, it would be really good to have some sort of, and I'm going to air quote this like responsibility, the ability to wake up on time, get to work on time, you know, all of those things, because those are all skills that really, you're going to need all of those skills to be an entrepreneur. So that's a perspective, right? Whatever you choose to do, that's totally, totally fine. To the people who say college is a scam, you know what? Sure, there are parts of it that, that are, and I'm going to air quote this, a scam. But I also do want to point out that there are a lot of people in the U.S., especially outside of the U.S., that do see college degrees as a way out of their situation. There are a lot of people overseas, and I'm going to generalize, but there are a lot who come to the U.S. for a college education, university education, and go back and their job prospects increase like tenfold, right? Or they're really poor and they get a scholarship to come over here and to better their prospects. Same thing for children or high school students here. There are a lot of people that I've interviewed who have gone out of really terrible home situations, have gone out of poverty because they have gone to college. And sure, there are some degrees that are not necessarily useful when you graduate, but college isn't necessarily about learning skills. It is also about networking, about meeting people. It is about a way to get maybe internships that, again, kind of puts your foot in the door for other opportunities. And so for many people in this demographic, college isn't a scam. It is It is actually a way out. And so I just really want to bring that perspective out there. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I think it's important, too, to note that the folks who wave the trades banner, which great. I have a good friend who in his 40s is finally going back and getting an associate's, but it's it's an associate of applied science and it has to do with welding. And it is true. There are some trades where you can be done and you can make $100,000 a year. Those are few and far between and depend on where you live and what the demand is. I have another friend who, instead of going to school, got into an electrician's apprentice program, apprenticed as an electrician and has become a journeyman and he makes good money. The trades do have a lot to offer, but it's also important to note that in some cases, depending on where you're at, where you're going and where you need to go to get that trade training and education and where, what the demand is, you might still have to pay. My friend doing the welding, he has student loans to help pay for the welding program and the cost of being the welding program because he has been living in poverty for the last 20 years. He can't afford to just not work and not have student loans and do this welding program. Like He makes such a small amount of money, but because he's a full-time student in this welding program in my state, he doesn't qualify for SNAP benefits unless he is working 20 hours a week. How is he supposed to do that without student loans? He has a Pell Grant. He has another scholarship from the school. The student loans is what he needs to put food on the table and pay his rent so he and his son have a place to live. So even just bleating about the trades is not enough to be like, well, then you'll never need student loans again. And that's not true. Many people, even if they're going into a trade to get that training or go through a program, they still need student loans. 
I would love to find more specific programs if we can. We'll link to some in the show notes. I remember when I was in teacher's college, one of the field trips that I took my students on, again, this was Canada, so, but I feel like it's fairly similar to the U.S., is where we actually took field trips, I think it was a high school juniors and seniors to trade schools, and it was to encourage them to go into the trades because this was, again, mid-2010s. They were encouraging the students to consider trades because the predictions, I think, for the next like 20, 30 years was that there weren't going to be enough people to enter into these professions, and they're so needed that they were trying to do a preemptive strike to encourage more people into the trades. I'm hoping that there's a shift in how people view the trades because in many respects, again, depending on the type of trade, you are an entrepreneur. I see people in my neighborhood all the time that are doing lawn service and some people making really, really good money, (laughs) especially in Florida where grass grows years round. And so there's a lot of lawn businesses that are doing pretty well, right? If you are a mover, Some people decide to strike out on their own. There's a lot of things like that, that really, if you are looking to earn a high income, there's a potential to do that. I think the the key here is that we do need a marketable skill. And in some cases, even if you're not getting what we call a traditional four-year education, whether it's getting an associate's degree instead or learning a trade, in a lot of cases, you still need to do these programs. You still might need some sort of student loan funding to make it happen. I think it's important too to realize that even if you do decide you want a college degree, that's okay. I actually use my degree in what I do. I have a degree in communication, I have a degree in journalism, and I have an MBA. And I can easily afford the student loan payments I got for my communication bachelor's degree and my journalism master's degree. I can easily afford those student loan payments. And it was worth it for me. And I am not sad about it. So my degrees are in education, English literature, and visual arts. So I actually do use all of them to a degree. I obviously directly use them when I was a elementary school teacher. I feel like a lot of my visual arts skills have really translated to a lot of things like learning to use Canva. I mean, that's a really direct one, but just just kind of different things like that. And again, my debt's paid off. <laughs> like, uh, I'm luckily for me, tuition was like super cheap. I'm not even going to talk about how cheap it was compared to the U.S. And teacher salaries in Canada at the time that I I graduated would have been in line with the cost of living and I could have more than afford my would-be or my former student loan payments. It really is just about like, where are you at? And I think another thing to remember as well is, you know, we're lucky that we're using the things that we used. Once again, it goes back to when we are talking about getting pushed into college, seeing it as prestige and the ticket. And then the idea that student loans are acceptable for this and we're told to take these student loans out, all of this goes together. And once again, we're asked to choose a major and commit to this when we're 18 years old. I changed my major three times. We kind of have to talk about this, Miranda, is student loan forgiveness. It is a pretty hot topic. We alluded to it earlier in this episode. And we're just going to talk about it really briefly. And in terms of some stats we can throw is so far, there have been some forgiveness attempts like Miranda uh, spoke about before by offering special waivers. And a lot of these waivers have amounted to close to $132 billion in student loan debt being wiped out, which is pretty cool. It's important to note, too, that 55% of Americans support cancellation for up to $10,000 per borrower and 47% support up to $50,000 per borrower. So it's a relatively popular policy, even though the Supreme Court struck down Biden's 
$10,000 blanket forgiveness plan. But I think it's important to note that, you know, more than half of Americans think that we should have debt cancellation for up to $10,000 per borrower. It's also important to remember that the main disagreements that a lot of people have over student loan cancellation are about amounts and whether we should means test it. And whether or not you agree with loan forgiveness or not agree or the amount or whatever else you agree or disagree with loan forgiveness, I mean, Miranda, what do you think? Like, does one-time cancellation really solve the the ongoing problems that we are, and we as in the U.S., is really experiencing with student loan debts? Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest issues, right? It's like, okay, yes, uh, student loan cancellation can be part of our our efforts to try and provide folks support as they get an education or develop a marketable skill or whatever it is. But the reality of the situation is that one-time forgiveness won't stop rising attendance costs. It doesn't address interest rates, right? I was under a completely different program. It was before the government was technically the student loan issuer. So my rates were much lower, right? So I have my student loan rate is 1.9%. But if you take a look at folks who went to school in 2018 to 2019, it was 5.05%. If you look at folks who went to school in 2021 to 2022, it was 3.37%. These rates are all over the place. And some people think, well, maybe if you do student loans and the government's going to do it, maybe they just need to be a low rate all the time, like one or 2% or maybe 0%. Maybe we shouldn't be charging interest on these loans. So some of these future solutions include interest-free or very low interest or no interest accumulation if you are on income-driven repayment. So the SAVE plan is the only one that offers that. And there are several different income-driven repayment plans. So some people say, why don't we get rid of all of these different income-driven repayment plans and just put everybody on the SAVE plan? Or you know, free two-year schooling or free trade school or tuition caps. Like there's a lot of policy solutions that many people are floating out there. And I'm not, you know, I'm not here to debate the merits of each policy solution. What I'm saying is a lot of folks are saying like, hey, if we're going to do student loan cancellation, we need to take other steps to make sure we don't end up back in this spot in another 15 years. And whatever policies may change, may not change, new ones may come, the reality is if you have student loan debt, as an individual, you, you just have to think about how to address it in its current format. And so whether you have private student loans, federal student loans, you are about to take out student loans, it's really important to understand that if there are parts of policies that may not, you know, I'm going to air quote this, like work in your favor, maybe there aren't going to be any more student loan cancellations. Until then, it's really, really important to have this plan in place until, you know, these things may or may not happen. So Miranda, what are the takeaways for this episode? First one is many of us with student loan debt took it on as young people whose brains hadn't fully developed. We were told this debt was the ticket to more income and higher social status. And my parents, even as upper middle class earners, would never have been able to send me and all my siblings to school without us taking out loans. So that is something that we have to start with here is that many folks with student loans from several years back have this debt now And we have it in large part because we were encouraged to take it out. And if you are one of the listeners that currently have student loan debt, it might make sense to consider what your options are, especially if you have federal student loan 
debt. So depending on what loans you have, you can try to figure out how to lower your monthly payments, maybe through an income-driven payment plan, other plans, just to get some breathing room while you figure out a more definitive plan that really can make sense over the long term. And don't feel ashamed. Again, I know we harp on this all the time is don't feel ashamed if you have student loan debt and it feels overwhelming, there are so many different options out there. And if you were really young when you took these student loan debts and didn't really understand the repercussions of it, exactly how, what it entailed, completely understand what's important is that you are taking the time now to figure them out and to find a way to really help your situation. And so if you want access to a great financial resource, we will be putting it in our show notes, but we are going to go ahead and link to studentaid.gov page on managing student loans with income-driven repayment so that you can see what that is. And we'll have some other great financial resources throughout the show notes about where you can go to learn more about forgiveness, some calculators you can use to figure out which plan you might qualify and what your payments might be so that you have a better idea of how to advocate for yourself when you start looking at tackling these student loans. Because believe it or not, not all customer service reps know their stuff, right? Even if you try to escalate it to someone else, they may not know their stuff. I'm not saying this is common, but it could be where they're trying to get you off the phone. In some cases, they may try to poo-poo you off. And it's, yeah, advocating for yourself is one of the best things you can do, even if it's just asking more clarifying questions for you to understand what's happening, or you realize what the person on the other end of the phone is talking about isn't true or may not apply to your situation. Again, trying to get someone else on the phone to explain your situation. All those things can, can really help. That's it for this episode. Thank you everyone for listening. Miranda, what are we going to talk about for the next episode? We are going to talk about how debt can be an important part of starting your life over or even just getting a leg up depending on your socioeconomic status. So we're going to dive right into why so many people actually need debt in their lives. Thanks for joining us on It Doesn't Make Sense. The best way to support our nuanced approach to money is to share it with a friend. Subscribe to It Doesn't Make Sense on whatever podcast player you use. For resources and show notes, head to itdoesntmakesense.com. We also accept appreciation in the form of a refreshing beverage via Ko-Fi or coffee, whatever. We don't care. We'll drink it. Just head to ko-fi.com slash it doesn't make sense, no apostrophe, and provide us with a fortifying drink. <laughs>